<laughs> Guys, I can't fucking wait to see that movie. Yeah! I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And this week, we are bringing you a very special feature. Oh, yes. yes. We're going to play a fun little game of Mary Fuck Kill. I cannot wait to watch this movie again. It's just so fucking weird. We're about to hit the dance floor at Jackrabbit Slims because we've got that Saturday night fever, baby. I loved this movie too. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. I just pray that Green Book doesn't win this. Oh picture. god, I know. That- <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Talk Movie to Me, a weekly podcast where we either feature a new release and delve into our weekend entertainment focus in on a performer's career, or buy an extra-large popcorn and do a double feature. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And this week, our dear Helen is away frolicking. And in her stead today, we have Risha. For longtime fans of ours, you may remember Risha from his two previous guest spots reviewing The Wife and Judy. You may have also heard him gabbing away with myself, reviewing season one of Canada's Drag Race on Moose Knuckle which is a spectacular podcast that is available to download wherever you get your podcast. Thank you. Welcome, Risha. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Hi. Thank you so much for having me. What a joy. It's always lovely to be here. Yeah. Uh, thanks for coming back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love how you say Sometimes it. Like, we treated charm? you so badly the first time. <laughs> okay, but I do need to say one thing. Speaking of that, though, mm. is on one of the episodes that you guest hosted, we did a whole segment on Matthew Broderick and then realized it hadn't been recording and we had to do the whole thing over again. Yes. So actually, thank you for coming back. Honestly, yeah, I mean, it was great. That All of those experiences were fantastic because that led to us doing Moose Knuckle and it's also led to us being friends. And so I have zero regrets. <laughs> Lead us in, honey. Okay, so... This week, we'll be reviewing The Woman King. I personally am very excited about this. I think we all are. So to give us a little synopsis, in the 1800s, the Ogoji, a group of all-female warriors from the kingdom of Dahomey, fight with skill, ruthlessness, and really sharp nails against (laughs) rival kingdoms, Portuguese slavers, and their own trauma. Viola Davis stars as General Nuniska, a powerful leader who looks set to become Dahomey's first woman king in generations. Tuso Mberu plays Nawi, a young disobedient girl thrown into training as an agoji by her father when she refuses yet another suitor. Isn't that always the way? <laughs> the film is both action and period piece and packs in a whole lot of plot lines <laughs> that I can't wait to talk about. It's written by Dana Stevens and directed by Gina Prince Blythewood. Edison, what were your first impressions? Okay, so we. We were having a family dinner that night and mom and I were rushing like crazy to get there in time. And we actually arrived after the film had just started. Oh my God, Edison. I know. It was absolutely devastating for two reasons. One, because obviously I hate missing the start of movies. And two, because what I was looking forward to as much as anything else was seeing the I Want to Dance with Somebody trailer on the big screen and it was attached <laughs> to this film. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> and so I we missed it. But anyways, I rolled in to the film and it was it was the beginning. Uh, I, I think it was still the beginning. They were storming this village to liberate these women who've been taken as slaves. Mm-hmm. And then since like I had read and realized that I didn't actually miss that much. But my first impression was that this is like badass, gory action, and I was totally into it, into it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How about you, Sinclair? Okay, well, firstly, I need to say that a Tuesday matinee, that's where it's at. I'm telling you. (laughs) That is where it's at. It's cheap tickets, and it's just me and some elderly people. And it is nice. And I was there on time. I saw all the new trailers. And there were some really good trailers before The Woman And King. including? Uh, yes, I, including I Want to Dance with Somebody. And it's, it is is uh, it looks good on the big screen, Edison. So, <laughs> it does look good, I, I have to say. I saw it too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So excited. So as for the film, uh, when, <laughs> <laughs> when this starts, 
there is definitely an energy to it right away with that drum beat and there's also something very intoxicating about it and I felt that way when I saw the trailer for this too you are really feeling something powerful is in the works and the sound and the atmosphere is is really incredible at the beginning when this starts then you see Viola Davis emerge as this warrior and she has you know her squad behind her and they're coming out of this long grass and it's really a beautiful shot and (laughs) I honestly sometimes when I see Viola Davis on screen I just instantly want to cry and I don't know what it is (laughs) I it's just her presence is so cinematically powerful and when you see her on screen you just think, you know, Viola Davis, you were born to tell stories on camera. Like, you're just meant to be on camera. You have such a powerful presence, and you can just feel that she's an important part of cinema. Like, as soon as you mm-hmm. see her on the screen. Mm-hmm. I definitely felt that when this movie started. How about you, Risha? So I was very excited to see this film. It's black-led both in front of and behind the camera. It's filmed in South Africa, not in a studio. And some of the actors are themselves African, specifically Tuso Mbedu. Again, I'm going to apologize. I'm definitely completely not pronouncing her name right. Thusa Mbedu. Thusa Mbedu. Okay, I was so, so far away. However, even though it is black-led, it is also, I think, my, my big caveat here is to remember it is still written, produced, directed by Americans, not by anybody who's from Africa, mm-hmm. uh, let alone from West Africa. Uh but I want to point out the fact it's by Americans because it really just leads into my first thing I thought during the opening scene, which was, oh my God, it's an Avengers film. <laughs> because mm-hmm. <it's> like... <laughs> Especially because the trailer for Wakanda Forever happens right before. Oh, so you're yes. kind of already influenced. And that definitely kept in my brain the whole way through the film mm-hmm. uh, because the action is so good and it, I think there is a lot of inspiration from kind of the way that Black Panther shot um, the, what are they called? The female guards um, from Black yeah, Panther. Yeah. yeah. The Dora Milaje. So yeah. like you who, can definitely see that in the opening shot. Oh, yeah. For sure. And, they, and the funny thing is that I read that they themselves, the royal guards in Black Panther, are inspired by the Oh, yes. So it's like <laughs> yeah. all yeah. feeding into each other. Yeah. It's very cool. Okay. Well, why don't we get into the storytelling mm-hmm. to begin? Yeah. I mean, I think that that is, from a storytelling perspective, I think that that is right. This is very much in the vein of Braveheart, The Last Samurai, Gladiator, those types of historical epic films. And so I don't think that there's anything necessarily novel about the the story, like the framework of the story itself. But what does make this film novel, obviously, what's different is that... We've never seen Hollywood release a movie quite like this, right? Mm -hmm. Set in Africa with all but two speaking characters being African characters and all pretty much all females and female, a black woman carrying a big budget film like this Mm -hmm. that has to make money at the box office. So even that this movie exists and was made, that's what kind of makes it kind of revolutionary. But the storytelling itself, I think the framework of it is like, it's not that novel. Right. Well, I mean, exactly that. I think it's the history that makes this really interesting to watch, kind of the story behind this. And I think, mm-hmm. Risha, you you know a little bit about the, the history of this these particular yeah. warriors. Yeah, so I obviously got really, as I like to do, down a Wikipedia hole. And then I did go on to real sources, but that's where we all begin. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so I think one thing it's important to remember about the Egoji and the Tahome is that they are portrayed in the film a bit as kind of being like, especially Naniska is like being, oh yeah, we're going to totally get rid of slavery and like we're going to rely on palm oil. And that never happened. They continue to profit off of slavery. At this point, actually, slavery had already been made illegal by the British and was the reason why, part of the reason why we have Portuguese slavers is because the Portuguese were still enslaving people. Mm. Um, Otherwise, I think it probably would have been British people. And so it's important to remember the society is very complex in the sense that, yes, these are heroes. And I think that it's valid to have them as heroes in this film. Um, But they simultaneously are estimated to have contributed about 5% of the 12.5 million slaves during this period that were taken out of Africa, which is about Mm -hmm. 625,000 people. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty wild. 
yeah, I mean, like, this is definitely like a bit of revisionist history, which mm-hmm. is also very common in this type of historical epic film. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And I will say to, there was a bit of a potential boycott happening with this film. Heads up, Tom Cruise is not a samurai. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The thing, the thing I will say to all those people trying to be like, oh, you can't portray the history this way it's like well sorry every single colonial film with white characters in it has made heroes and you know wonderful people out of white people that came to colonize own slaves rape pillage so i don't think that we have any like to stand on right <laughs> when right. we're trying to say that you know black storytellers can't tell stories about people who participated in the slave trade we've already told so many stories about the slave trade that completely erase the narratives that this film represents well i was also reading an article with the director too that was talking about how that they were at a crossroads Mm -hmm. with the slave trade and that conversation was coming up and they did want to move away from that and i mean from what i read from what the director said is that they they did and the women had a hand in making that happen so I don't know what's true and what's not, really, but that is what they are saying in terms of that conversation, that, that they were at a crossroad to to stop and move on to the palm oil. For yeah, sure. um, and I think, for like, at the end of the day, f- for us, I don't know. D- do we pick apart the, like, history, the, ac- the historical accuracy of every film that we watch? Or are we just <laughs> no. talking about this as a film? We'd have to boycott a lot. We'd have to boycott that. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, also, yeah. I'll also say that most of the history of the Dahomey that we have is written by white settlers. So, <laughs> right. Like, people are like, yeah. well, the, the records say this. It's like, yeah, records written by who? Yeah. I know. And, like, I had never heard of Dahomey be- prior to watching this film and doing research for this podcast. So I can't do two hours of research and then like assume that I'm an expert on the topic, but I do think it is important. I agree with you, Risha, to kind of highlight that bit of historical and like that revisionist history that's in the film. Well, and also there is controversy. There's controversy surrounding it too. Yes. Um, And that conversation has come up with um, the press tour for this movie. And obviously like Viola Davis has uh, had to address this and the director has had to address this situation. And yeah, yeah, I mean, for me, this is definitely a piece of history that I'd never heard of. And I think that, you know, in terms of the dark past, for for me, this was really a story about women and it was a story about these warriors. And from what I got out of it, they didn't really have a lot of options. <laughs> yeah. You know, they had to serve their king. It was like serve their king or die um, or be raped or whatever. So it's not like they were sitting there with all these options. And it does feel weird for me to look at these women and be on some sort of like moral high ground and say, oh, your kingdom was taking part in this. It's like most kingdoms are built on bloodshed. So... You know, whatever these women had to do at the time. Like, I can't really sit back here and be all moralistic mm-hmm. about what their Fair. ethical choices were. <laughs> Absolutely so, not. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> Hollywood has romanticized the East India Trading Company. If you want to look at Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, great example. Mm-hmm. Um, they've also romanticized the antebellum period in the South. Like, If we can romanticize those things, then why can't we have a story that shows these people to be human on top mm-hmm. of all the other things that they were? Yeah. Well, and I think that that is important part of this too, because really, like the story here is a human one. The the part of the storytelling that I found most compelling was the relationship between Naniska as the general of the Agoji and all of the other women that are in that you know military unit in that warrior tribe with her, and particularly with Nawi, her daughter. I thought at, once we find found that out, especially, but even once we, they started to sort of plant that seed earlier on. That whole relationship was just really the compelling bit of heart and like human in this film for me. Mm-hmm. I definitely got that. I have a question for you, Miss Sinclair, because Sinclair, I mm-hmm. feel like we might be on the same page here. Was there a particular B storyline that you felt that maybe this film didn't need? <laughs> like the romance between yes. <laughs> <laughs> Maui and the slave trader? Yeah, what was that about? Okay, so this is what I think happened here. And, you know, I found the tone of this really interesting because (laughs) there are elements of this film that are, like, quite brutal. 
but also kind of Disney-fied where, you know, we've made that comparison to Marvel. Mm-hmm. I would make the comparison to Marvel, but also a Disney movie as, as, yes. as well. I was actually going into this thinking that this was going to be maybe like a tale of revenge, almost like a gladiator or a Northman. Mm-hmm. And it does have revenge aspects to it, but it ended up having a lot of like coming of age storylines to this and within that there also was this this romance at the same time so I feel like it was like the tone of it where it didn't quite fit into one box and that romance element felt a bit Disney-fied and I was actually asking myself does Disney own the rights to this movie is this going to be put on Disney plus even though it actually is a Sony film it's going to be put on Netflix but Mm. I was like is there an element of this that is being made to fit with a streaming service Mm. interesting you know the director does seem to have thought through everything is sort of the vibe I get even if I don't agree with some (laughs) of the choices so I wouldn't be surprised if they were thinking about that it's pretty clear that she's trying to like put a finger in every pie with this film mm-hmm, to a degree mm-hmm. and that's very impressive but yeah there's certain I felt like there were so many storylines that there were other ones that I didn't really get to see as much of that I really would like to see more of particularly the relationship between Aniska and the king's wife that rivalry mm-hmm. that gets portrayed quite briefly mm-hmm. is fast I, I would watch a film just about that like mm-hmm. I mean I think that yeah everything in this film is intentional there's reason for it and that is interesting to think about whether it was specifically kind of strategic in terms of marketing to a, like a streaming service or even just the very base most basic thing of having like male eye candy in this which they definitely serve that um yeah. but but i, I think that like it that was shirtless shot i knew it well <laughs> that is that is literally my that is like it ticks all Your of the type. boxes Oh, God. <laughs> um, For reference to our listeners, Edison has dated no fewer than five Brazilians in the time I've known him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think that it was meant to show her sort of choice of independence. Because even when faced with this t- temptation or like uh, potential to go in this other direction with somebody who actually does seem really kind and good even though it's clear that he doesn't understand her he respects her and her choices and she still makes this decision Mm -hmm. to stay with the agoji instead and it so it reinforced that character's sort of independence and like taking that feminist stance in that way yeah well they talk about love being a weakness too exactly yeah like the warriors feel that love is a weakness so i think that it does serve the purpose of you know making that statement like i'm choosing my role with these women as a as a warrior mm-hmm. over love yeah. i also think malik you know himself represents interracial and biracial people that existed during that period yes who mm-hmm. very much were stuck between two worlds and that's an experience which many interracial and biracial people today can relate to i think i would imagine mm-hmm. um you know it's malik's not just there for a six-pack although i will say unlike you sinclair i watched it at young and dundas at 9 p.m uh, with a very full crowd, very oh. engaged, and there were, I mean, shouts, boos, everything. Yes. Like when when Nawe at like when Nawe is like saying goodbye to Malik, and she just gives him a nod, and that's it. Literally, there's like a sad sigh fills this, the theater, <laughs> and then after that, there's some woman who just goes like, "Sorry." <laughs> <laughs> the entire audience just laughs. It was great. Yeah, I definitely did not experience that kind of reaction with the elderly today at the matinee. It was uh, crickets in there, let me tell you. <laughs> Sinclair, as the woman on the podcast, we do expect you to say something about women. Um, I don't know if the, I don't know if we as men explain that to you well enough. Right, but. right. Yeah, you're right. I need to say something about the women in this movie, and I will. Okay. Um, you know, when I was watching this movie as uh, a woman, as a woman, of course, um, I was thinking to myself as a woman, you know, what it, what what is most important here? And I had gone in not really knowing anything about the history of this or or anything. Mm. And 
I did find myself watching this and and saying, is this movie good for young girls to see? Mm. Is this a refreshing and interesting way to portray black women? You know, there's a a book about black black roles for men being from butlers to superheroes. And it's like, okay, but what about black women? This is that movie. I felt that in terms of storytelling, not everything about this story worked for me plot-wise, but everything in this about women did you know the relationships between the different women i love the mother-daughter stuff in this i agree i really also enjoyed the relationship between them and the way that it got built i think it's got to be really hard to go toe-to-toe with viola davis in any kind of serious scene like if I ever had to do a scene, not that I ever would, but if I ever had to do a scene with Viola Davis, I'd only do it in a comedy film because it's the only time when I feel like I might be able to yeah, you're like, contribute maybe something. I'm funnier than her. <laughs> like Viola, I would say Viola's like one thing Viola never, I've never seen her do in a film. Tell me if I'm wrong. Is like tell a joke. Like she's never told a joke in any film that I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. But I don't need her to. But you know, even in this uh-huh. film. There's like one moment of having fun, I think, that's meant to be her at the end where they dance. And even that moment where it's like, let's dance, mother, it cuts away and you can tell it's a body double dancing. It's not even Viola. (laughs) And it's like, in my head, I was like, come on. (laughs) The audience in the theater with me were screaming and hooting and hollering and cackling at that moment. Yeah. It was great. (laughs) I will say my audience screaming, hooting, hollering pretty much every single time the Agoji killed a white guy. And I was very into it myself. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they were literally just like yeah get him and i'm like i think in response to you sinclair talking about is this a good film for girls to see i was sat there thinking about like oh is it a good film for like these older women to see it obviously seems mm-hmm. to be because there were a lot of older black women in the audience yeah i noticed yeah and like it seemed to be very i would say cathartic judging yeah by i just feel like it really did meet that all of that criteria of mm-hmm. you know is this an important film for women Speaking of Mother's Edison, you went with your mum. Is yeah. there any <laughs> review from Mama Skinner? Yeah. Yeah, mum absol- absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. She did. And I was not sure what to expect with mum. Like, she could go one way or the other with these types of things. With she does, She's not a huge fan of action films in general um, or, or any type of sort of gratuitous violence. But I think she really related to and felt sort of empowered by, like she said afterwards, or actually throughout at one point, she said, Christ, women just have it so shitty everywhere. And <laughs> uh, I, that was something that I did appreciate about this film. You know, what for, for whatever conversation about revisionist history that we want to say, the film wasn't trying to present this society as being some sort of ideal society. They no, were still, it's still... It's still a place where a young girl gets thrown away and discarded by her father because she won't Mm. marry an abusive Mm -hmm. older man, right? And so I do think that there was something here about, like, female power and independence and resisting the oppressive force of man, like, fucking Mm. the patriarchy. That was really cool. And mom appreciated that, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I think the the other story that I loved was watching Aniska face her, her literally face her demons which she says is herself but it is also literally the general of the opposing mm-hmm. army that it, they never explicitly say but it seems pretty strongly implied is the person who raped her or one of the people that raped her mm-hmm. from the way that they cut everything together and yeah. that oh, part yeah. was really really interesting to watch and I think just generally seeing her body covered in scars, the way that she would walk with almost this, like, limp and everything. You know, I, my my dad was in the military for a very long time, and watching her have flashbacks and stuff, I was just like, yeah, this is definitely the experience, I think, for so many soldiers that mm-hmm. have to then, the you know, there's the war that you do outside, and then mm-hmm. you come home and mm-hmm. you have to fight a war within yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that was very, very much present especially in the performance so do we want to jump right into the performances here yeah so viola davis uh, yeah she was what you know (laughs) yeah she was all right she was okay (laughs) i felt like she i felt like she actually did prepare you know she prepared (laughs) i mean just the sheer the sheer physicality of this performance 
Viola Davis is fifty was fifty seven years old when she shot this movie. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be bent and broken by the time I'm fifty six. <laughs> I just had to go up nine flights of stairs today when I was doing laundry, and I was just completely winded. So. Yeah, it really, it really, it made me think about like. So I think like a great physical transformation example is Charlize Theron in Monster, like the way that mm-hmm. she completely becomes this other person, and she even talked about how she would like draw her knees back and stuff so she'd be kind of like bow-legged or something Mm. to like make herself skulk and i just Mm. felt like that level of detail was there with viola the Mm. the walk and the swagger like i've seen i've seen a lot of soldiers walk around they walk like that they walk Mm. like wrestlers basically yeah um so interestingly it was supposed to be lapido nyongo Really? So she was supposed to play the Viola Davis character, but she actually stepped down from this role because of the dark history of these female warriors. And there's videos of her just really upset talking about what these female warriors did. Viola Davis, she stepped into this role like beautifully. I I think that she did such a great job and it in no way glorifies anything that these women did did at this time and i i mean i still think they they had to (laughs) you know i don't think they had much choice but she she did manage to just bring so much to this role and i think that yes lapita nyongo would have been great i'm sure she would but she's also a lot Mm. younger and it wouldn't have the same impact like viola davis is 57 and it's also a great role for older women Yes. As well. Yeah. And to, to cast an older woman and an older black woman is, is amazing. Like, she's incredible. And she just, she wears the years in a good yes. way and a bad way. She has the emotional strength of, of somebody who is of that age. And she's still in such great physical condition as well that it just makes for a really, just a dynamic performance. There's no agree. way. I'm sorry. Lupita is amazing. But think about... The scene, just the tiny little quiet moments. Think about the scene with Viola sitting in the bathtub in that sort of sauna space near near the like three quarters of the way in when she reveals to Nawi that she's her mother. The weight that she's holding in that moment, it's mm-hmm. like monumental. The gravitas is monumental. The the years of suffering and pain mm. and warrior and mm. warrioring, all of it, it's there. You have to be an older actress to carry that that type of presence. Yeah, and power. you picture Lupita Nyong'o as like maybe like the right hand. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, totally. I think Lupita would have been a very interesting choice. I mean, she is actually from she's from Kenya, she's from Africa, mm-hmm. so I feel like that would have perhaps given it uh, a type of. I don't want to say legitimacy because it's not like she's from Benin, mm-hmm. which is like modern day where Tahome was. But I think that might have given it a bit of a different stint, at least in the way they promoted it. Mm-hmm. But I also just can't imagine it being anyone else but Viola after watching it. It's same. It's it's her film. She described oh, yeah. it in one interview as her, as her magnum opus. And I think she's mm. right. Mm. Yeah. So she trained for nine months. So did all the other actresses as well that played the warriors and they really wanted it to look authentic in terms of their their bodies and their physicalities they didn't want them to be too lean like they were on some sort of like la diet so you know they each had these like very specific regimens that were based on each performer's body types viola Mm. davis just put so much into this and she has a great quote with people magazine she says When I was a girl wanting to win the Miss Central Falls Recreation Contest, (laughs) wanting to look good in a bikini, wanting to be thin and delicate and pretty, I just wanted to be this willowy thing. I was always muscular and thicker, and I felt like my femininity could not be created within this canvas. And then all of a sudden with Mm. this role, my muscles, my arms, my thick legs, my heavy voice were perfect. I felt unapologetic about it, and I celebrated it physically in every way it's funny because that speech mirrors what so many drag queens say about their experience of getting into drag when they're people who've been 
you know, seen as being feminine their whole lives because they're yeah. willowy or because they have stereotypically feminine features. <laughs> and they say that when they go into drag, it gives them this power because they're, again, their physical physicality becomes perfect for the context. Mm-hmm. And it's so, so interesting to hear her say that. And mm-hmm. so it is so true. Like you, you I can't really imagine because Lupita would be very willowy. <laughs> it would be very strange yeah. to see uh, <laughs> do this role in a way. Yeah. It would be very odd. To be completely frank, I'm surprised that she's letting those big quotes out now because that should be part of her like Oscar campaign. Like I expect that more <laughs> in her Golden Globe speech or her Oscar speech. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a question for you both. Did yeah. you notice how the director very cleverly surrounded the very serious Viola Davis with some excellent comedic actors? Yes. It was mm-hmm. like the perfect balancing act that I think they did. Yeah. The supporting cast in this was great. Oh. Like really good. Knocked it out of the park. Amazing. Yeah. Lashana Lynch as Izogi. I know. S- stole the film from me. She was amazing in every single scene. She's terrifying and hilarious and smart and unpredictable. She was also the standout in the new Bond film, in the latest Bond film, No Time to Die. Like, Mm. I think she is a star, and I need her to be the lead in a big film like this. I agree. She is fantastic. Like, some of the lines that she had, I mean, kudos to the scriptwriter, but very much kudos to her delivery. Where she's like, why haven't you watched yet? Like, you're going to bring the buzzards. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I died. (laughs) And those moments of levity are just as important as the serious moments in this film because yes. it creates this um, momentum, this pendulum of emotions that you're swinging between mm-hmm. that is both very good at making you as an audience have, you're sort of manipulated, right, to, to really seesaw across all of the parts of the emotional spectrum. And then it also gives you a, a moment of relief from watching people literally dig a man's eyes out of his skull with their nails, which <laughs> I will never get over that scene. <laughs> okay, so we're we're talking about Viola Davis, of course, uh, but she's not really the the protagonist of this film. Actually, we're really seeing it through the eyes of Nawi, and Nawi yeah. is played by Thusam Bedu, and yeah, I thought she was great too. What did you guys think? I mean, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say she's the protagonist necessarily. I would say this film maybe doesn't even have a set protagonist. Mm. Like it's implied to be Viola, but like you get to see like flashbacks from both of them, and mm-hmm. like there's there's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. But she's incredible. I think that she clearly knew that her role is meant to bring the audience into the world of the Agoji, and she was able to do that so well in the way that she was communicating the emotions of like some of the very intense experiences that she had to go to to the camera to go through sorry um when she refuses her husband and she gets thrown out when she has to walk through thorns when she has to confront viola which by the way i can't even imagine confronting viola in real life let alone confronting namiska Mm -hmm. (laughs) i know seriously yeah Mm -hmm. so I, i think that that sort of compelling stubborn root within her really makes her endearing to watch as a character because even though she is going through this recruitment and this training and this conditioning and she's seeking to conform and to become part of this elite group she's simultaneously constantly rebelling against everything they're trying to make her do and so you're just kind of like what is she going to rebel against next like Mm -hmm. is she going to go just like you know low-key bang malik like i don't know what's gonna happen (laughs) yes turns out yes yeah. Well, no, she doesn't. She doesn't do that. She, she bangs does. him. When does she? She bang totally him? does. That's the thing is, there's she, not a. She scene. sleeps over and then she's, she walks yeah, out when they're like attacking in the blanket. town, and she's, she's in wrapped blanket. in the blanket. She's wrapped in a blanket. He comes in shirtless again. Honey, they don't. Was, she you was don't just take sleeping off that man's shirt and. Oh, and, no. I mean, okay, maybe they were just wow, sleeping. Wow, wow, <laughs> wow, Risha. It's I know you of all people. I can't believe that I didn't notice the oh, sex part. Oh, they were just wow. sleeping. <laughs> I yeah. well, because it was just very so... it was very postcoital. I okay. so did not get that at all. Bless. Really, yes. you think because because no, afterwards no the thing. way she says goodbye to him is so there's like no whatever. That's there's definitely no what that it was. That was explicit. Really, <laughs> it was yeah. explicit without being explicit. 
Okay, just right. for background, I have a master's in porning yet. Apparently, I missed this, which I'm very upset about. <laughs> I know. Um, oh my god. Yeah, okay. she know. she was great. Her chemistry with Viola Davis was so good. Mm-hmm. Like I was saying, I love the mother mother daughter scenes, and she had so many Viola Davis qualities in her. She was the perfect younger version. Mm. She had this defiance to her that you can see Viola Davis's character looking at her and being frustrated by so many things that she also feels in herself. Oh, yeah. And I think that these two are really good at showing a connection and a bond and a tension between the two of them before actually knowing the mother-daughter stuff. Right at the beginning, you could tell that there there was some sort of connection that was happening between Mm -hmm. the two before the story Mm -hmm. actually reveals more. Oh, yeah, for sure. I did. I will say I did find the like whole I hit a shark's tooth in your body thing. I uh. yeah. I was wondering if that was like medically. I don't think it I is. I feel like, like the body, a foreign body, it like it would. The body would push that out. out. A foreign yeah. object. The no. body would push that out. I feel like. Yeah, it did. I couldn't I even. Get, I couldn't. No. Edison, I couldn't even keep a piercing in my upper ear. I once got bucked off of my pony on Dartmoor. <laughs> okay, and I fell ass first into a gorse bush. All right. And I wasn't wearing jobbers <laughs> as I should have been. And I had oh needles God. in my ass for like six months that I had to sit on every time I sat down. But they did come out, okay? Right. And I think that that shark's tooth would have as well. Just that was the most English story I have ever heard in my life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, um, we have to talk about the king. I know this is the woman king, but there was also a man king in this. Do and we? it was played by John <laughs> Boyega. No. Are you kidding me? I thought he was... What? You didn't love I him in this? Was... He was good, but like I, you can't hold a candle up to an inferno and say that the candle's keeping you warm. You know what I mean? Like Viola just like Viola just like overpowered him in every single scene. I also think they just watered him down a little bit. Like I feel like he was definitely more of a villain. Like he was more of a brute. I think that the character was very intentionally written as this pretty boy king. He's there mm-hmm. pampered and beautiful in his gorgeous flowing robes surrounded by a giant bevy of beautiful women in his in his castle and he you know has these women warriors to do all the hard shit for him he had moments where he could be strong where he had moments of being kind of threatening but i thought he was like he was kind of the comedic relief in some capacity Uh, and i i loved him i just felt like i i didn't want to like him at all because i was just really uninterested in all the men in this movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was I was too. Except except for the one the one person who I don't know if they are a man exactly. I think they might have. I think they're the a eunuch. man. But yeah, I was oh, like, I, I feel stealer. like you would be non-binary. Scene stealer. Scene stealer. Absolutely. Oh, I mean that eunuch's purple robe. I <laughs> would make and wear and live in and sleep in. You <laughs> know. Yeah. I know. Literally, that is your <laughs> that is your outfit. It was the way that they delivered the line with the with their arm, like kind of. There was this particular arm gesture. It was like, "Mm," it was just so fucking sassy. The actor was great, but in my head, I was also like, "Where was Billy Porter? Like, should have been in this role. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been so good." Okay, what about technical? Do you have any technical things we want to comment on? I mean, I think we're all going to say it. I'm just going to be the first so I can get it in before you guys. But the cinematography is just mm-hmm. so good in this film. Uh-huh. Uh, David Fear and Rolling Stone notes how in the opening scene, the way that Prince Blythewood films Viola Davis from that slightly low angle and in a way that emphasizes strength and bravery and leadership and nobility and also the promise of violence. And it really mirrors a lot of the opening scenes that you see for a lot of like military films, action films. So... Mm-hmm. To see a woman in that role is like very exciting and special, I think to me at least. And I, it's very clear that the cinematography is all about emphasizing women's bodies in ways that they're not usually emphasized. Yes. Like, yeah. Well, the cinematographer is Polly Morgan and she is a woman. And that is a role that we don't, you know, we don't, we had this conversation in the Oscar special last year. Like you, you really rarely see female cinematographers on big projects like this especially battle epics Mm -hmm. exactly 
And we talked about Polly very recently when we were talking, because she was also the the cinematographer on Where the Crawdads Sing. And I remember in that episode, I said, I wonder if you guys will feel like this film is too Hollywood. Like The Woman King would be too Hollywood because that was your thought about Where the Crawdads Sing. I think it works Mm. in this one. This film is sumptuous. It's gorgeously lit. It's beautifully shot. I thought that there was... It's complicated to film those action sequences, and I thought that she got Mm -hmm. really cool angles and unique ways of showing that. It was really well done, I thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not easy to do shots of people doing flips and throws (laughs) in, like, uh, multi-blow sequences like that. It's Mm -hmm. very tricky, and I think she did such a good job. It's captivating. Yeah. Um, How did you guys feel about the score? Ooh, oh, I, I thought it was really... Oh, I thought the score was, like, melodramatic and, and, like, almost cheesy at times. Yeah. I could have done... I could have done with, like, maybe, like... An, I know it would have been, like, maybe, like, not of the era, but I would have loved a, like, June-style, like, industrial, <laughs> really intense, like, you know, screaming nails on a chalkboard kind of thing. Would have been It's like really it tried Bresner and Atticus Ross or The <laughs> yeah. Living King. Um, Yeah, I just felt like this, the music, I think, was what was contributing to me having like a Disney feeling, Mm -hmm. a Marvel feel where, you know, I think a warrior battle movie, the the music is different Mm -hmm. than a superhero film. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't think that that distinction between the two was there. I also just, I think that it's something you see more in american films you know the obsession with like the swooning soundtrack for emotional Mm -hmm. moments and Mm -hmm. actually the shaking sobs that someone's gonna give in a scene like that can be far more emotionally compelling than hearing a for the millionth time Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i think that's obviously my beautiful voice renditioning that for you but Mm -hmm. you get the idea i have a question for you so in terms of makeup and costume because i I was obsessed with looking at like stills of this film. There was like glimpses of the the wives' makeup and fashion that was so like ornate and beautiful and complex. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I felt like I just didn't have enough time to look at it all. I was like, this yeah. is too I know. good. The world that they oh. created and the costumes, the production design that you wanted, I'm with you. You wanted to spend time in that world and see. I wanted to see more of it. I thought it was... There's no world in which this is not nominated at the Oscars for costuming and production design. No world. There's a racist world where this doesn't get nominated, but yeah. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Okay, fair. (laughs) (laughs) It will be nominated, though. Yeah, no, that was just... That was also so beautiful down to every single detail. And I'm sure the historical accuracy is is there in terms of some of the production design and the costuming for sure. And if Ooh. it's not, you know, I don't really care. It was amazing to look at and it was like incredible work. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's actually a quote from The Guardian, Toronto journalist Benjamin Lee um, saying that in an age of downsized streaming projects that look as if they were made in a parking lot, it's rewarding to feel so immersed in such a carefully realized world. And I, mm-hmm. I do think like there were times where it felt a little bit airbrushed and that contributes to the Disney feel as well, Sinclair. Because yeah, everyone was even, really clean. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I was about to say. Like, even the poorest people Those into warrior home, outfits were pretty pristine. clean. Like, uh, they yeah. needed some dust <laughs> or something, yeah. some sand or yeah. rip. I can accept that, like, the upper classes of society would be, like, pristine, but, like, to see, like, the farmers looking very, very clean, I was like, come on, and, like, they're not going to have all their teeth, you know, like, Uh it's kind of, like, no, no one did back then, like, across the world, like, you know, these just weren't things that anyone had, except for very, very few, so, yeah, I, I think that's another part of it, like, even the scenes of... Like the uh, the natural setting were also just like so perfected, like they they pretty much never had a battle in an ugly place. You know what I mean? The only place I would say was ugly is the fortress, um, the Portuguese fortress in it, which definitely is still kind of beautiful so, and definitely yeah. way too clean. <laughs> There's no shit All on right, the floor well, of that fortress. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Okay, y'all. What was the last word on the woman king, Risha? So this film, I think, really just proves that you can have an incredible action film that has political weight, historical depth, comedy, unpredictability, beauty, and it really just proves that period films don't need to be about stodgy white people who don't have anyone to marry or who keep running out of tea. 
they can be (laughs) so much more than that and i'm so excited to see the sequel and i think we all need to go watch something with with vashana lynch in it because incredible queen yes okay sinclair what is the last word last word for me there were elements of this in terms of story that didn't necessarily blow me away but there are so many great aspects to this movie viola davis is 100% 100% worth the ticket price and just the set the choreography the supporting cast also great and just just so many really cool things about this movie so I really do think it's worth the time mm-hmm. yeah for me I had such a great time watching this film I thought that from a technical perspective I mean like cinematography costuming production design performances directing to- choices I thought it was really excellent and I thought the casting especially knocked this film so out of the park for any types of conversations that people want to have about the sort of revisionist history of this film i think fundamentally the story is like a a historical epic and i love those kinds of movies and this one just kills it i thought it was great long live the woman king yes here here this episode we challenged ourselves to watch films that fit a particular theme and the theme is fit for a queen this is our week in entertainment Mm, i'm very excited to hear about what you two watched so i have a bet for what edison's gonna be because you told me the release date of it but i have no idea what yours is miss sinclair (laughs) just full of surprises here (laughs) Okay. okay well you have to go first me yeah yeah oh, okay sure sure, sure, sure. <laughs> we're such bullies edison we're just like oh, you need to go first don't start <laughs> so i chose for the, i thought a lot about this two of my choices were marie antoinette uh that's what i thought you were gonna go for and then i ended up i know and then i ended up choosing neither of those because oh. <laughs> i remembered that i when I had last done an episode with you guys, I had talked about how I really wanted to do an animation film at some point. So I did for this one, Princess Mononoke. (gasps) Oh my God, yes. Yeah, it's so good. Is my Uh, favorite of all of those films. Yeah. Yes. Uh, So for those who don't know, Princess Mononoke is a Studio Ghibli animation uh, set in the late Muromachi period, which is about 15th, 16th century in Japan. It took 16 years to draw and three years to produce, and it got its first theatrical release in Japan in 1997. As of 2020, the film has grossed 194 million US dollars across the world, and like many Ghibli films, it has a huge cult following worldwide and remains one of the highest grossing films ever in Japan. Hmm. Part of the reason I chose this is because, like The Woman King, there's a, there's actually a lot of similarities to The Woman King. Uh, because it's 16th century, swords are still very much a thing. There are muskets, there's some technological advancements, there's gunpowder. And like The Woman King, it's also a period drama, and it's very much a fight over resources and a fight for autonomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's also a female ruler in Princess Monarche, who's as complicated as Naniska, Lady Eboshi who basically is able to create a prosperous town out of the forest, out of nothing, and is able to give a shelter to people suffering from leprosy and give them a job and a livelihood, and also takes in women who have been cast out from brothels and also gives them a brand new livelihood, working in the forges Mm -hmm. and giving them a place to be happy. And she also trains them in the use of muskets so they can defend themselves. It's pretty cool. But simultaneously... Uh, Lady Eboshi is murdering the spirits of the forest <laughs> and turning them into mm-hmm. demons. So, a bit of a complicated character. Uh, and then the titular character, Prince Monoke, is the Prince of the Spirits, her rival, who's Prince of the Wolves. She's untamed. She's completely uh, ferocious. She's constantly trying to kill Lady Eboshi, who's very much poised, civilized, well dressed, you know, great nails. Uh, mm. Which is a big <laughs> theme in, in our podcast so far. So there's very much just two different ways being shown of how to be a woman in this film that I think are pretty incredible. And then the other part of it that I think is really exciting. So normally for a lot of animation, people will say you have to go subbed, not dubbed. Like you have to watch it with subtitles and listen Mm. to the original voices of the actors. And I usually do that, but I went dubbed this time and I need to explain why, because Mm. the voicing cast for this, I don't know why, is incredible. There's no Danny Minogue's, there's no Frankie Grande's. Like 
Princess San, who's been swimming at Mononoke, is voiced by Claire Danes. Mm-hmm. Don't know oh. why. Lady Eboshi is voiced by Minnie Driver. Toki, a former brothel girl and forge worker, is voiced by Jada Pinkett Smith. <laughs> and the She-Wolf Goddess is voiced by Gillian Anderson. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. There's also John DiMaggio's in this and Keith David, who are lesser known, but it's still pretty incredible. And to listen to their voices in this film is very strange to hear Claire Danes and Minnie Driver duke it out. Yeah. <laughs> as oh my God, princess. that is, that would be totally surreal. I, I, I admit though, anytime I watch one of these movies from the studio, I always watch the Hollywood voiceover versions. Really? <laughs> really? This was yeah. my first time ever listening to the dubbed version. I've never listened to the dubbed version before. Yeah. For the, I will say for, for listeners, like, if you're skeptical about listening to a subbed version, I think it's good to do sometimes because especially if it's actually set in Japan, it's giving you a bit of a taste of what the film is meant to be. Mm-hmm. So I think it can be pretty incredible. But anyway, yeah, Princess Monoke, really, really beautiful, beautiful film. I get that for some people, fantasy is hard to get into. I get that for some people, animation is hard to get into, especially when it's from Japan. But this, if you're going to watch any of them, this is the one to watch. Mm-hmm. It's really beautifully beautifully told this story and it really helps to illustrate the damage that mankind does on the environment that it's been doing forever that we've it's still so prescient today as when it was released and it also deals a lot with disability the one of the main characters is a prince who gets a curse on his arm that gives him superhuman strength in that arm but also mm-hmm. it is causing him huge amounts of pain and slowly killing him so it really shows basically what a hero can do even when dealing with some types of incapacity looming death chronic pain and also you get to see people dealing with leprosy given actual human voices being real characters fighting getting to be part of society these are all pretty incredible things i still think Mm -hmm. and especially for the 90s gosh okay sinclair i want to know gotta tell me what did you do for your outing so I ended up watching Pink Flamingos. Gay <gasps> um, <laughs> gasp. Gay gasp. Oh, this is a lot. <laughs> so Pink Flamingos is directed by John Waters, who is the king of bad taste. It's from 1972, and it stars his frequent collaborator, Divine, who Woo-hoo. was known as the queen of filth. Or the Queen of the Grotesque. This movie delivers, let me tell you. Yes, this is uh, quite the creative pairing between John Waters and Divine. They were childhood friends. I think it's amazing they found each other and they became this this creative pairing. I have an interesting relationship with John Waters. I actually had not seen the beginning of his filmography. So I haven't seen the Divine movies which is Mm. such a big part of how his career started. So when I was first introduced to John Waters, it was with Serial Mom, which Mm -hmm. is one of my absolute Mm. favorite 90s movies. And the, the reason I hold it so dear is because... I, for some reason, was able to rent this as a child from my local video (laughs) store. And I don't know (laughs) how or why I was allowed to rent this because I was pretty young. It's because they saw something in you. Yeah. And I I watched this this young and I just thought it was just so funny. And there was something bad about watching this John Waters movie. I've, I've loved that ever since. And I do love his movies, Cecil B. Demented and Cry Baby, Hairspray. But these are all a little bit later in his career when his movies became a little bit more mainstream. So, you know, I don't even know. What, this movie's so gross. Okay. <laughs> I mean, she eats shit, right? Yes. So, yeah. and, and that's actually at the the very end. You go through a whole adventure of filth before you it, even get to that point. So that's like I mean, nothing it, at ew, the end. It brings God. a whole new meaning to shit hits the fan. Yeah, shit. A does drag hit queen's the fan is not what you think of when you think <laughs> of that expression. Yeah. Ew. So, John Waters and Divine had done a couple movies before Pink Flamingos, but it really was Pink Flamingos that got the most attention and Mm -hmm. it's funny that when you look up pink flamingos on imdb right next to it in brackets it says banned um yeah so i mean this movie had has had such a like controversial history and i also couldn't find it to rent 
or stream anywhere. I ended up getting it from Bay Street Video. It had been wow. on the Criterion channel at some point, but it's really hard to find, to be honest. Okay, so a little synopsis of the movie, even though plot is not the most important thing, really. Mm. <laughs> Notorious Baltimore criminal and underground figure Divine goes up against a sleazy married couple who make a passionate attempt to humiliate her and seize her tabloid title, The Filthiest Person Alive. Okay. This mm -hmm. is definitely considered to be one of the most outrageous and grossest films of all time. It, it definitely holds that title. <laughs> I was actually watching this and thinking to myself, I, I don't know how I'm going to actually explain some of the things that happen in this. On well, the try your best because I am fascinated. So I actually found a little blurb on Wikipedia that I could just read that actually sums up everything that you will find in this movie. So it features a number of increasingly revolting scenes that center on exhibitionism, voyeurism, sodomy, masturbation, gluttony, vomiting, rape, incest, murder, cannibalism, castration, foot fetishism, and concludes to the accompaniment of how much is that doggy in the window with Divine's consumption of dog feces. What? Wait, wait, I'm sorry. You said it's increasingly vile? How is foot fetishism at the end of that list after castration and bestiality? <laughs> this, listen, I don't know. Take it up with Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Sorry, that was just the one thing in my brain. I was like, foot fetish? Is it that bad? Where did you watch this, Sinclair? I rented it from Bay Street Video. You don't listen to anything that I say. <laughs> she like, just you said just that. completely tune out when I start talking. That's not true. Yeah, so basically Divine and her family of misfits are living in this trailer, and she holds this filth title, and there's this couple that thinks they're the filthiest, and they want to take this title from her. All of that aside, this mm. is very much a 70s counterculture film. It's a director that is being outrageous. He's basically, you know, I think telling people, get off your moral high horses. Everyone can be filthy. You're filthy. You, you're watching this movie. You know, like, get off your moral high horses. We're going to put this out there. And, you know, Divine always says in the film, eat shit. And I feel like John Waters is just like, eat shit. The, the 70s were cool. They were radical and they were controversial and they did guerrilla style yeah. and they were just like, I don't, what's a studio going to do with this? I don't know. Someone's going to figure it out. <laughs> it's so cool. It is really, it's really cool that they, that they were kind of, that they just went for it and then it found a place. I will say for people who are scared to watch a John Waters film, which I can understand you might be, a great introduction to John Waters, weirdly, is season seven of RuPaul's Drag Race, where he guest stars and all of the drag queens oh, act out yeah. scenes from Divine films. Yeah. It's incredible. And you get to actually have a bit of yeah. an understanding behind why he made these films and that it'll make you want to go watch more, for sure. But he's also funny he's really funny and he's a troll and oh, he does so this funny. because he is a troll at the end of the day and he likes putting a mirror in front of the audience yeah. and he likes showing you these images that you might be afraid of yeah he's he's really mm -hmm. unique and he also just loves the reviews so he likes putting out outrageous movies and just laughs at the reviews like he has one that obviously the critics didn't know what to do with this in the 70s some people loved it other people thought it was you know disgusting <laughs> and vile but he he talks about how he has a favorite quote from the detroit free press that called this movie a septic tank explosion <laughs> but yeah wow. he has such a, such a good sense of humor and you know there's still screenings of this movie that sell out and people bring pink flamingo barf bags and it's become you know such a cult classic and I don't know. It made me think about movies being made now, and every movie has this in intention of being on this streaming platform, and who's it going to sell to? And John Waters is such a good example mm -hmm. of somebody who just told everyone to eat shit, literally, metaphorically, and just made this art on this $10,000 budget and was completely outrageous and just had something to say. So, say what you want about this film it is oh. the shit <laughs> okay edison what did you do this week well the film that i chose for the theme this week fit for a queen is the queen 
I knew it. I knew you were going to pick the queen. The drag doc or the one with Helen Mirren? Not the one with Helen Mirren. No, I'm talking about the <laughs> documentary from 1968. Have you seen this, Risha? <laughs> Wait, I thought you were talking about the Helen Mirren, the queen. This is not what no. this is. What are you talking about? Ugh, before Paris is Burning, there was another iconic documentary okay. about underground New York drag culture. Mm. And it came out in 1968. It's available for free to stream on YouTube. And it's called The Mm. Queen. And it follows a group of drag queens as they prepare for and compete in the Miss All-America Camp drag pageant in New York. It is directed Mm. by Frank Simon, narrated by uh, one of the queens, Flawless Sabrina, who is a judge in the competition as well. Uh, in the pageant and fun fact or not so fun fact actually drag was actually illegal in new york at the time uh, that this was shot and so the pageant was called a Mm. quote satirical happening (laughs) to get around the rules (laughs) (laughs) is that brilliant Uh, that's a great drag name satirical it actually really is especially as a nod to this culture that's it would be brilliant this movie was really, really, really wonderful. It's short, too. It's like an hour and ten minutes, maybe. I had no idea. I knew that drag queens existed, but I didn't realize that the pageant culture was so similar, kind of, to, to like how it is today in many ways, way back then. Really, this film is, it's not like much happens. That's the entirety of it. It just is a documentary following this whole group of queens and really kind of focusing on like five or six of them in this hotel room, kind of preparing together, getting ready, just the sort of slice of life of what it is and backstage and all the rest, getting up and leading up to the actual pageant itself. And then, of course, filming the pageant itself. There's some really Mm. cool moments like there's this one point where they're just hanging out out of drag in the hotel room and one of the queens sings this old song Honey Bun from South Pacific and it's like clearly this queen's drag numbers to do it and the, the lyrics are hilarious she's abroad where abroad should be broad and all of that <laughs> it's just this moment of like pure and utter camp it's brilliant but then there's other moments where it really touches on some things that were certainly not lighthearted, like Mm-hmm. One of the queens at one point jokes and says, wouldn't it be a mess if the draft board came down right now and asked us for a physical? And they all kind of like laugh and another one spins in a robe and says, well, this is what I'm wearing if I get called down there. And she tells a story of like a friend of hers who's, and she's like, well, why haven't you been drafted? Did you tell them you were homosexual? And the friend says, no, they told me. And they're all like laughing (laughs) and creating comedy out of these shared stories of their experience with the draft board. And of course, they're talking about the military draft Mm. board in America to go into the Vietnam War. So this is a really like a heavy topic. But as queens do and clearly have always done, they make comedy out of it. Because what else can you do? There's this really, like, epic moment at the end when they're filming the pageant and they're announcing the winners and they do get to the third runner-up and it's Crystal LaBeja from Manhattan. (gasps) Yes, and... Third runner-up. Miss Crystal is not pleased, honey. (laughs) After the ceremony, they catch this moment with Crystal and another queen ranting about the winner. Do you think she deserved it? She did not deserve it. She is not beautiful. She does not have the qualifications and she is bodyless and just goes Mm -hmm. off, right? (laughs) And (laughs) accuses the pageant of being fixed for the winner Harlow. And and now we know because of Paris is Burning and because of RuPaul's Drag Race, everyone has become a lot more knowledgeable about kind of drag culture and the like, that Crystal LaBeja went on to literally create the House of LaBeja that was still dominating mm-hmm. the ballroom and drag scene 20 years after this film. And we see it in that documentary. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this film was wonderful. It's There's a lot of queens. It's fit for any queen who likes to watch it. And I really, really appreciated it. Really appreciated seeing a glimpse inside this world. So the reason yeah. that I knew about this doc is because it's, in, it's referenced in Pink Flamingos. There is... Um, 
in one of the houses really? there's this wall of a bunch of like elizabeth taylor posters and then there's also a poster of the queen this dog amazing okay really really good picks yeah that thank was you. really fun and again thank you so much thank risha you. for stepping in you are a wonderful yes. co-host as always i'd say the only thing that makes me sad about this podcast yeah. i've never actually done one of these podcasts with helen i've only ever done them with with you guys which is great i obviously love you both but uh yeah it's it's funny i've experienced yeah stepping into her shoes but i've never actually got to be honest with her. but thank you so much for having me it's always such a pleasure yeah well it's her own fault for going on vacation <laughs> yeah <laughs> well this has been another episode of talk movie to me uh if you would like to subscribe and become a patreon member please do so at patreon.com at patreon.com slash talk movie to me you can please listen to us on you can rate and review oh my god like and subscribe and do all those things okay look helen's not here we don't know how to do the outro so just go ahead and do your things thank you oh helen i guess we need you uh yeah our podcast is talk movie to me talk movie to me available great much better much better sinclair bye bye